0: Welcome to the Miles Pike Podcast, a podcast that strives to foster excellence in gospel music, both on the stage and in the local church, through conversations. I'm your host, Miles Pike. I'm hoping to probe into the lives and minds of gospel artists, industry legends, and some frontline people on the worship scene. Guests include fellow artists, pastors, session players, producers, songwriters, comedians, radio personalities, and theologians. Subscribe to not miss an episode, share on social media with the musicians, pastors, and music ministers in your life, and please rate and comment to help take us all the way to being able to say that dozens and dozens are listening. Thank you for taking time to join in on the conversation. Now on to the program. To answer the burning question in your mind, who's Tommy Cooper? I'll start by giving you an idea of who he's worked with over the years. The Gaither Vocal Band, Anthony Berger, Collingsworth Family, Signature Sound, the Crab Family, just to name a few in the gospel music realm. Other artists include such notable amateurs as Pebo Bryson, the Commodores, Melissa Manchester, Paul Davis, Doug Stone, and me. Somehow I don't fit in that list. However, if there was a contest for who has worked with him the longest, I may easily hold that record. Tommy, or TC as he is fondly called, has been my producer since all the way back in 2008 when I was recommended to him by a voice teacher and mentor at music school in Nashville. There's only one of my projects that doesn't bear his name. For those who know my music and concerts, you know that I'm probably an interesting fish to work with in the studio. With a large vocal range and musical influences all over the map, it takes a producer with broad style and expertise to make sense of it all. As I mentioned on the pilot episode of this podcast, this content is targeted at other artists, music ministers, pastors, and fledgling musicians. But I have worked hard to also broaden it so that I believe any Christian who is intrigued in the topic of music and worship can find it not only interesting, but can find insights from every discussion. This conversation was rich, and I found it very difficult to edit it down, and so I decided to let you spend the end of the year and holidays with my good friend, TC. Normally, this is an every-other-week podcast, but I will not release an episode around Thanksgiving, Christmas, or New Year's, so there will be one episode for each of the months of November, December, and January. These three episodes will cover a lot of ground, and you'll find these exchanges will range from music of the past, present, and future to the nuts and bolts of the recording process— to some behind-the-scenes stories, and much, much, much more. So today, let's begin with an introduction
1: to Tommy Cooper. Well, good morning, Tommy. How are you doing? Good morning, Miles. I'm doing just great. I'm sitting around in anticipation for receiving another horn today, which which I ordered last week, because 14 trombones is not enough. So I have another one that's coming today and I'm excited about that.
0: I, I I believe it and uh maybe um maybe to give the people an idea of what it's like inside AFAB studio, uh there's not just horns of all iterations on the wall. I know there's a double bell euphonium, is that correct?
1: Yes, we have a double bell euphonium. We okay. have uh we have a tube, but there's all sorts of stuff in the closet that you hadn't even seen. I've got a sousaphone in the closet and, uh-huh. and some other broken-down baritones and things like that. I've got trumpets and cornets. Uh, I just love musical instruments. Now, if um, it was a
0: Dr. sousaphone, I would be very interested.
1: Well, that's kind of what the double-bell euphonium is. That's the Dr. sousaphone. Oh. Um, you know, it's uh, for those of you who are not familiar with that. It's a baritone horn or a euphonium that has two bells, and you can play through either one of the bells, and ha- and each and the bells have different sounds. So um, it's it's kind of a goofy instrument. They made them from the 1880s until World War II. You don't see a whole lot on them anymore, um, but uh, but they're kind of they're, they're they're interesting, and it looks like something that would come out of a Dr. Seuss book. Well, I am uh, I'm
0: stretching my movie trivia knowledge here, but isn't the double bell euphonium referenced in the musical, the music man?
1: Yes, you're exactly correct. Um, music man, which in my opinion is the greatest of all musicals ever done. Um, just because it's so clever. And every time you see it, you see something else that you missed the last time. Um, Oh
0: yeah. But, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a train sequence, you know, being done
1: the first rap record that was the first rap record <laughs> um, but um, uh, yeah in the in the song 76 trombones the lyric goes double bell euphoniums and big bassoons. da 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 and that's what a double bell euphonium is and they had them. and, and you know this that show is set in 1912 and uh, that was kind of the heyday for the double bell euphonium, All, uh, you know, back before TV and movies and uh, cell phones, they had, you know, people would go out to uh, on on Sunday afternoon to the uh, town square, yeah. and up There in the, and the up there in the gazebo, they would have uh, uh, the the town band would be playing, and most of these little town bands had like a hot shot soloist. It was either a cornet soloist. Uh, because everybody played cornets back then and not trumpets, uh, or a trombone soloist or a euphonium soloist, and uh, and a lot of the solos, the feature things that they would do would be uh, theme and variations kind of deals. And uh, so the, one of the cool things about the uh, double bell euphonium was you could play parts of it through the big bell and then parts of it through the small bell, and it was kind of almost like you were doing a call and answer with yourself. <laughs> so yeah, uh, uh but there, to my knowledge there wasn't ever really any music written specifically for the double Bay euphonium. People just used that and you know kind of used their own ideas and creativity to figure out how to make it make it work and make it entertaining. And um so I, I I'm I'm fortunate enough to have one. Uh there's only about 5 of them that I know of in Nashville. And uh and mine's a real good one. Uh so it plays pretty well in tune and you know, it's and, and it was made in nineteen thirty five, the um it's an old horn but it sure does it sure does play well.
0: Well I, I have heard it played so I can I can um... testify that it does have a a, a very clean sound and and very unique one so uh if you you know right out of the gate here the audience can already tell um we're not quite sure what we're going to be in for with uh with some of these questions and answers but let's uh start off with just a um an idea of how'd you end up doing what you're doing tell us about your your raising and your your background
1: I was real fortunate. I, I, I lived a, I had a relatively privileged uh, upbringing. Uh, my father was a successful businessman, and uh, so we, you know, lived in ni- nice, nice houses in nice neighborhoods. Uh, my dad was sort of a, a self-made man. He never graduated. He never graduated from college, but he found himself as a successful businessman. Uh, Having to uh, socialize and interact with a lot of people who who had a lot more education than he had, so he uh, went on a kind of a crusade to better himself, to to expose himself to uh, to the arts, to literature, and to and to music, uh, to classical music, in particular. So when I was a baby, and and from the, and actually from the time I from as early as I can remember until I was 12 years old, the only music that I ever heard was classical music. Hmm. Uh, he joined uh, record clubs and he'd get a new album every month and it would be a Beethoven symphony or uh, a uh, Tchaikovsky piano concerto or a, you know, I- any... I mean, <laughs> by, the time I got to, by the time I got to college... Um, I knew pretty much most of the orchestral repertoire that you ever hear, and in fact, um, I, I used to help my music major roommates through their music lit classes and music history classes because I grew up on that stuff. I knew all that stuff by the time I was twelve years old. Uh, so, so my background basically comes out of a out of a real strong classical. Classical upbringing, and it wasn't. And like I said earlier, it wasn't until I was 12 or 13 years old that I really listened to popular radio. Yeah. And and that was I was in an accident when I was almost 13 and was in the hospital for a couple of weeks, and that's what they were playing in the hospital was you know top 40. So I kind of got you know enamored of of you know pop music top 40 stuff and this would have been in 1970 uh which was a great time for popular music and um so i started you know getting more interested in in, in pop music uh still i never i still loved classical music and still do and still find myself choosing to listen to classical music a lot of times when i have what do i want to listen to well, i'll listen to this and it's classical um but uh you know the I, I got uh, um, interested in, in in pop music, and then from that that that's kind of what got me in, got me interested in playing guitar and then playing bass and then playing some keys and stuff like that so that's kind of that's what kind of what I come out of that's that's how I got started. Of course, you know, in fourth grade, I started in band. We started band in fourth grade. Yeah. Uh, and, and we had a great band program in, in, in Atlanta, which is where I grew up. And uh, we, had, we had an elementary band that was, that was comprised of kids from like seven schools in the, in, in the northwest Atlanta area. So it wasn't just like the school band which sometimes mm-hmm. can, can, yeah. can be sort of limited in terms of, you know, numbers and instrumentation. But, you know, by the time you get, you know, uh, 12 or 15 kids from seven schools, you know, you've got a pretty good-sized band. And, and we had, you know, we had French horns, we had bass clarinets, we had contrabass clarinets, uh, oboes, <laughs> bassoons, the stuff that nobody has in elementary band. But, um, wow. it was a piccolo? great, it was a, we had piccolo, we, uh-huh. you know, um, it was a great band program and the, the band director would come to each of the schools at some point during the day. So you'd have to play for the band director and you'd have to play the stuff that we were working on in band and you had to do your, your, uh, methods book stuff. You know, you know, well, now we're on lesson 21 and we're in the, and we're learning how to play in the key of E flat. Um, <laughs> but and, and 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 it was competitive, and you got points, so you had and you had to practice uh three yeah. minutes a day, six days a week, and you had to get your parents to sign your practice sheet so you know you you had to turn that in at your lesson every time and if you didn't practice enough you got you got points taken off taken off if no, you practice no. what
0: I I, I was just going to say, this is disturbing me, because you mean to say that if you didn't practice and you didn't do well, you didn't get a participation trophy? (laughs)
1: Uh, No. No. You got no participation trophy. We we hadn't heard of any of that kind of stuff. I
0: I don't know how you survived your childhood, you poor, scarred creature.
1: I know it. Uh, Yeah, it was really terrible. Because, yeah, you, you would have to do all these amazing things in order to get about 10 points. But if, you, but if you, like, didn't practice enough or, you know, misbehaved or something like that, then you'd lose, like, 50 points right there. It's like, wow, oh, points were so much harder to get <laughs> than they were to lose. So, uh, so it was competitive. And the person who had the most points in the section sat first, sat first chair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... Um, So it was, but it was, it was, it was a great band program, uh, in, in terms of teaching you a discipline and, uh, being a part of something that's bigger than you are. Mm -hmm. And it was a very successful band. I when I was in fifth grade, I started, I started in fourth grade on trumpet and changed over to trombone in fifth grade. Uh, when I was in fifth grade, we made a trip up to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and played at Duquesne University for some uh, some you know music educators clinic or something like that. And they brought us up there to kind of showcase this band that was that was great. We made recordings. I got recordings of of us playing stuff, and we were playing stuff. Wow. I was in elementary stuff. We were playing we were playing things that my kids were playing in high school. Hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean it was it was it was it was pretty impressive. And well, and we were not and we weren't the only band in Atlanta that was doing that. There was another we were the Northside Highlander Elementary band. There was another band the East Atlanta band and they were kicking butt too. I mean, for, you know, for elementary school bands, I mean, you listen to these these kids play it's like ooh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know one word
0: that I've learned from hanging out with you over the years is embouchure, and I've never forgot that word, you know,
1: the it's a good one i wonder yeah. what it means <laughs> yeah yeah it's,
0: I think it has something to do with your pucker you know okay. so when you're playing right. a horn but uh, i probably won't have an opportunity to do this with any other uh, guests necessarily so i'm gonna i'm just gonna take this opportunity to tell my favorite um uh, band joke or orchestra joke there was um this this Orchestra, very accomplished, and they was very concerned when they got a new conductor. They just didn't feel that this guy knew what he was doing, and sure enough, their um, their fears were confirmed when one day during practice uh, they was playing a very tender part of the music, and the percussionist didn't feel that the conductor was doing it correctly. So in protest, he just clanged his cymbals together several times in a row, and he uh, he. The conductor shut everybody off and said, "Who did that? Who did that?" <laughs> 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 so, yeah. So, how did you get from um, elementary band uh, in Atlanta to uh, playing or, or producing music in Nashville and and somewhere in there, I, you you went into journalism.
1: <laughs> so, well, yeah, when I was. Uh, when I was in the hospital and got in, interested in popular music, I also got interested in DJs. So the whole DJ thing really fascinated me, and I started getting an interest in wanting to maybe go into radio as, as a profession. And by the time I'd gotten through high school, that had kind of branched out to television. I knew the two because the two were pretty much were, were pretty related, um, and so. I ended up going to University of Georgia as a journalism major. I just I, I didn't want to be a music major for whatever reason, and uh, I thought that that I would have some more options, more different kind of opportunities. And like I say, you know, I was, I was fascinated with the whole with the whole uh, broadcast journalism thing. Anyway, unfortunately, sor- shortly after yeah. I entered school, I I. I I experienced a couple of things in the media that really were upsetting to me and pretty much told me that I was not going to be able to do that. And what it was, there was a couple couple of instances. Uh, there was a paper, I mean, there was a, a photograph that was on the front page of the newspaper of the Atlanta Constitution. and um, And it was a... Picture of a woman and her child jumping from a burning building in Chicago to their deaths, and and it was and it mm-hmm. won some kind of prize for you know photojournalism, and I thought this is obscene. People don't people don't I don't want to see this. People don't want to see that. Um, and and I and, I, mm-hmm. I, and, that, and that was a huge turnoff. And then not too long after that. Uh, I was watching. I was I was sitting in the dorm in the TV room at the dorm. Uh, this is my freshman year, and there was there was a a broadcast and and they were covering a, a bus accident that uh, took place up uh, up in Quebec, uh, where a bus full of handicapped kids um, went off the road and and went into the St. Lawrence River, and a lot of those kids. Drowned, and so they were covering this, and Hmm. and these reporters were getting up in the face of these parents of these children, you know, wanting their reactions and responses. And that's you know, and I thought if that's what they're going to expect me to do, if that's how my career is going to advance, I just don't. I don't have the heart to do that. That's not who I am. I cannot impose like that on someone. And um, so.
0: Well, has has producing me for the last several years made you wish that you had gone into journalism? (laughs) (laughs) I've seen too much. This is not me. uh. (laughs) It's obscene.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, now that you mention it. No, but we should go on to something else. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, I don't have time for all that. (laughs) Uh, so okay, so so we're talking about how I got started. I got way off on a tangent. And I apologize, but anybody who knows me knows that that happens a lot. Uh, so uh, I'm in I'm in journalism school over at Georgia, but I've but I'm I'm there on, I'm a, I'm on a band scholarship. Um, I'm minoring in music, and I'm spending all my time at the fine arts building in the music department and putting in the minimum daily requirement of the journalism school. And, uh, but I went ahead and, you know, finished out my journalism degree anyway. Um, uh, but by the time I got through my college, uh, I realized that maybe music might not be, uh, such a bad way to go. And, uh, I had a great band director at the University of Georgia, a very remarkable, uh, great musician, great educator named Roger Dance. And, uh, and mr dance mm-hmm. had been the had had, had been uh, at the school already for 20 years by the time i started and he knew so many people in the state of georgia and he'd had so many you know great you know people come through the program and um, so i i mentioned to him one time i said you know i was at home at thanksgiving break this is my this is my last year in college and and i'd seen this article in the atlanta in the atlanta constitution about the uh, commercial music business in Atlanta and uh, some of the records that were being made here in it, uh, were there in Atlanta. And I said something to um, mm-hmm. Mr. Dance about this one. I went back over to school and I said, do you, do you know anybody in Atlanta who is doing that? And he says, well, as a matter of fact, I do, and you remind me a lot of him. Let me hook you up. And he sets up a meeting between me and the man who became my mentor in, in this business it was a guy named Ed C. And, um... And so uh-huh. I, you know, that during Christmas break, I went down to uh, to the studio off of Cheshire Bridge Road in Atlanta, and, which was a studio in a warehouse, and uh, met with Ed, and we had we hit it off because we had both uh, we had both played trombone uh, in the in the band at uh, at Georgia. Right, all the great people uh, we have. had both played bass and bands on the weekends to make money, and we were both journalism majors who spent all our time in the music department. So, so we kind of we, we hit it <laughs> off real well that we there were so many, you know, some, so much we, we had so much in common. Uh, and making a phone call to the studio and just kind of check in with Ed, and he says, Hey, man, I said, he said I'm glad you called. Uh, he said, we're getting ready to start on uh, a Melissa Manchester album and my assistant's getting married and going to be gone for two weeks on his honeymoon and I need some help down here. So see if you can get, get a couple weeks off from your crappy little job and then you, you at least come down here and see if this is really what you want to do. Because I'd never spent any time in a recording studio. I didn't really know this is what I wanted to do. And I went down there and, and uh, started working at uh, a studio called Web 4. Had the studio down there, uh, had the record company down there, uh, had artists like uh, Paul Davis and Peebo Bryson. uh. Now, to put this
0: in a little context, Mm -hmm. uh, now, this is when uh, literally everything went on reels, and you would cut. Like, if you needed to make an edit in the album, you would cut. You'd pull out a razor blade. Yeah, cut cut with a razor blade and tape it.
1: Yep, that's correct. Yes, this is back. I don't, this is,
0: to, I don't mean to. date you at all. No, no, this is great. Just, this that is, is interesting to.
1: Now this is great because and I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, this is this is back. This is back in the good old days. This is back when re- recording was done the way God intended it. You know, <laughs> let's <laughs> put stuff on tape, pull out your razor blades, start cutting it up.
0: Um, yeah, <clears> not on the not on the on the Edison. You know. Edison-a-phone, you know, but not digital (laughs) either.
1: Right, right. Uh, Yeah, so that's that's how I started. We had a a uh, 2-inch 24-track analog tape machine that we recorded everything to. Uh, And we had a couple of, well, we actually had three um, 2-track machines that we mixed to. And a big old large format console, like you see in all the pictures of, you know, big consoles. And um, had a huge, huge studio room With a uh, nine-foot grand piano uh, Hmm. that was actually actually encased in a giant box, and um, and which gave it some separation from everything else that was in the uh, although the keyboard stuck out in the main room, the rest of the piano was in this what we called the big old coffin, (laughs) and um, um, you know so you could you could have drums you could have. Guitars and other things going on in the room, and it didn't really get into the piano too much.
0: Now, to Uh, to make this connection for me, is that the nine foot grand that you ended up with?
1: Funny you should ask that question. Yes, it is.
0: Okay, okay. Well, (laughs) you know, it's like most studios, and I mean, uh, most pianos you see are six foot. You know, a grand. Or, or, so, or seven, seven foot, yeah. but man, you know, by the time you get to nine, I always first time I walked in your studio, I said that looks like a whale coffin <laughs> when it's open. I mean, the <laughs> lid is just massive. But anyway, go go on uh, about the the studio. Yeah, but I, so, I, I was wondering if that was it.
1: Yeah, that that actually I ended up with that piano, um, which will probably fall and come. We may we may or may not get the answer to that question later in the interview, but yeah, but yeah, that's that's that that's my piano. Um, <laughs> the um, so I, I started working at, I started working at Web Four and I walk in and I've never really set foot in the studio before and I looked at this console and I'm just I was just totally uh, just intimidated by all the stuff. <laughs> And I remember Ed saying to me, he said, "Well, you know, all you got to do is learn one of these strips. If you learn everything on this strip on channel one, then you know what all those things do on all these different strips. It's just a matter of keeping it all, you know, you know, keeping track of it all. Like, oh, okay. Well, you make it, you make it sound so simple. Uh, <clears throat> so that's how I started. And and Melissa Manchester was the artist that I, that, that we were working on, and." she's not as much of a household word now, but she was then. She was a pretty, she was a pretty important, uh, female pop vocalist, uh, back in the late seventies. This was 1979 when I started working at the studio. Yeah. And she'd had, she'd had some, uh, she had some hits. And, um, so, we were working on we were working on Melissa Manchester, on. so we're working on. I mean, this is a, this is a big record. This we're not just cutting demos for you know somebody, you know, down the street or something like that. This is a this is this is a bona fide you know recording artist. So, and I say that because I I had the good fortune of being involved of getting involved with. A, 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 in, in an environment where I was surrounded with world class artists world class players world class arrangers world class producers and engineers, and had an opportunity to see recording really at its best mm-hmm. and um, and that, and that was and it was a, it was just a great training ground and and I, and I keep thinking you know there's probably tons of stuff that I missed because I was too ignorant. Uh, you know, at that point in my career, to pick up on some things, but but there were an awful lot of things that I got to, and uh, so I feel like that was really one one of the one of the great blessings of my life was when my band, my, my college band director, hooked me up with Ed C, and you know basically got launched my career.
0: Cool. Um, well, you uh, are proprietor of. AFAB Studio. Now, I know the story behind where that comes from, and I don't know if you want to tell the entire thing, but, uh, and and, and that's a good thing about editing, but what does AFAB stand
1: for? (laughs) AFAB. And it's funny because people will guess a lot about AFAB and they'll say, Well, I know you're kind of a Beatles fan, so does that have something to do with the Beatles? <laughs> I said, no, it doesn't. AFab stands for anything for a buck. And <laughs> Thus our relationship. <laughs> and, and 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 where that came from was um you know, the, my, my my career has, had, has certainly had its ups and downs, and you have periods where things are just going great, and then you have periods where things are, you know, you wonder if you're ever going to work in this town again. And mm-hmm. I was going through one of those, wondering if I was ever going to work in this town again, and I was given an opportunity, I guess you could say, uh, to uh, work with, a, with an artist who... Um, One of those guys that, that one of those people that you would say, you know, bless their heart. (laughs) Uh, This this is where your
0: journalism degree comes in handy. (laughs) It's um, like, how do you say
1: this? (laughs) Yeah. um, Anyway, uh, this particular artist had, had a bunch of songs, original songs, and needed to get lead sheets written. And so I wrote. The lead sheets for these songs, which politely put uh, were not the greatest, and I remember <laughs> sitting there I was, and it was when i was living with I was living in the, the in the the first house you ever worked in, what I always call the studio house yeah um, and it literally beca- it was it was the studio house because every room except my bedroom was used for recording and um <laughs> Uh, and I'm sitting over there. I'm, I'm, all, I'm working on this table, and I'm, and I'm and I got manuscript paper out, and I'm listening to these listening to these recordings, these demos, and I'm trying to figure out how to how to put this in in a, in a framework that makes any sense because some of the stuff, you know, every bar didn't have the same number of beats, and you know, it's, just, it's <laughs> kind of one of those things. And I, it was about two o'clock in the morning and I'm looking at this stuff and I'm thinking this is what I'm charging per lead sheet and God, I'm spending forever on it. Um, and I'm thinking, gosh, anything for a buck, I guess. And that's where the name for the studio came from.
0: <laughs> well, that, that always, uh, makes me smile. Cause I've heard the finished product. And so I, I've, I've seen the, you know, heard examples of the, the original stuff he sent, and then I've heard the finished product is like, wow, um, that it just you 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 you, uh, you found your calling. Just sometimes you uh, don't necessarily have the best uh, uh, stuff to start with, but. Anyway, um, now, one this, again, this is going off of old memories, and and I don't know if I'm using the right term, but I know you spent a lot of time working with uh, the Gaither videos, the, doing the Homecoming videos, and if I remember correctly, it's like, and of course there may be some more now that may have changed the, the ratio here, but I think you s- produced the first half of them, so how did that... Come about, and what exactly was your part in producing? You know, the video was it? Uh,
1: I, I did not produce. I had no. I had no. I did not produce that stuff. Oh, Okay. I well,
0: I, I had the. I had the wrong term. Then I just remembered you had a part in. You know the the early ones. So that, that's that's my question. What what did you do?
1: <laughs> so we're going to cut a Doug Stone record. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, went in to the studio. And uh, got all set up and started working, and and we spent, you know, it was a week or so uh, getting basic tracks. And uh, on that session was an acoustic guitar player named Bobby All. Okay. Yeah. And and you know many of he gave, he gave you your eyeball mug. That's he did. Uh-huh, that's correct. Uh-huh. He gave me my he gave me my left handed wrist, wrist watch. Uh, he gave me my <laughs> fitted Atlanta Atlanta Braves baseball cap. Oh man! Um, <clears throat> you know, um, Bobby was just one of those one of those people who was an incredible acoustic guitar player, uh, and also just this in- incredible person. Not only was he a great player. Um, but he could tell the funniest story. He's one of the funniest people I ever, I ever was around. <laughs> but he did so much to help other players in town. I mean, he would, um, he would come into the studio with, a, uh, with another acoustic guitar player who had just moved to town to sort of, like, get, give this guy an opportunity to meet some people, see how sessions work, hang out, kind of do all that kind of stuff. And he was bringing in people like Kevin Williams, um, Brian yeah. Sutton... I mean, you know, people who went, Aubrey Haney, people who went on to be really, really successful here in this town, were helped when they first moved to town by Bobby Hall. Oh. Well, I'm, wor- I'm working on this. Se- I'm working on this Doug Stone session. I've never seen Bobby. I've never met him. But for whatever reasons, we're kind of hitting it off. He's liking what I'm doing and all that kind of stuff. He says, "Hey, you know, I do a lot of work over at the studio." right around the corner from here that we do primarily gospel records and I do a lot of custom gospel records and we need to get you over there and let you, uh, you know, sit, you know, let you work over there some. So, you know, uh, about a year later, <laughs> about a year after all that <laughs> happens, um, I get a call to come over there and, you know, cut something at this studio called Sweet 16, which is owned, partially owned by Ben Spear of the Spear family.
0: Okay, so there's so, that connection. Mm-hmm.
1: So that's how I ended up going over there. Well, I got over there. Ben was there. Robin Mew, who was the studio manager, was there. We all, you know, hit it off, and next thing I know, I'm there all the time. I'm not doing <laughs> country records anymore. I'm doing Southern Gospel Records. Well, <laughs> you know, um a few months down the road, uh Gaither has gotten has started this homecoming video thing which he which almost was an accident afterthought kind of thing when he did the first one which had nothing to do with me or sweet 16 but but that thing was so successful that he got this idea well we could really take this we could really take this a lot farther so he gets with his old buddy Ben Spear (laughs) <laughs> and says, Ben, uh, I need you to be the music director for this, for this stuff, and you, get all, you write all the charts, and we'll talk about all the arrangements, and, we'll get all this, and here's what we're going to do, blah, 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 blah. and uh, where would you like to cut this stuff? And so Ben says, well, why not cut it here at my studio? So, uh-huh. so you know, the door open, one, opens one day and walks Bill Gaither, there I am. You know, and, and it's just because I'm the guy that's there. <laughs> it's, it's, you know and the the great thing about the Gaither stuff for me was yeah i did uh, i guess i did the pre record audio stuff for about 80 of those videos um and it's amazing to th- think-
0: th- it's amazing to think there are
1: 80 of those videos <laughs> oh my gosh and there and there's and and there're probably still some in the can that i cut that they never that they hadn't released yet i don't know um <laughs> but uh the great thing about that stuff for me personally was that it that you know it, as we would be doing the uh the 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 pre-recorded vocal stuff uh you would have a lot of the artists would come in and 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 be a part of that so it exposed me to a lot of these people that I'd never met before and you know for whatever reasons I was managing not to screw up so they were you know they, well i was oh.
0: I was gonna ask, did you even know who Bill Gaither was when he walked oh, yeah. through the oh, yeah. door? Oh yeah, oh okay. yeah, okay, oh, yeah. okay, oh yeah,
1: yeah. I I I knew him. In fact, I had worked uh, very early in my Nashville experience. I had uh, done some inspirational records, uh, worked on some Sandy Patty projects and Steve Green and, and, oh, and acts okay. like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, and yep. we had and we had gone up to. I was working with a producer named uh, another, just great talent. Uh, named Greg Nelson, and mm-hmm. we had gone and we had gone up to um, Gaither Studios, which were at the time was called Pinebrook Studios, up in Alexandria, Indiana, and worked on some of these projects. And um, and and I'd met Bill up there. I, so I and and of course I was familiar with who Bill Gaither was. Anyway, I mean even though I didn't really, I wasn't really that grounded in Southern Gospel, you know, you you. You know, I did go to church. <laughs> you, you can't, you can you can't escape Bill Gaither. So, no. um, so anyway, uh, being in being involved in those sessions, uh, and 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 I established a pretty good relationship with Bill, where he he knew he could kind of trust me to you know, to to do stuff the, you know the way he'd like for it to be done, and um, but but I guess I, I guess other people thought you know, these other artists that are coming into the studio to work on these homecoming things. Well, gosh, this guy's good enough to engineer for Bill Gaither. I guess he's good enough to engineer for me. So I got, <laughs> I got, I got a bunch of work. I, and and, and I'm, it sounds arrogant, and I don't mean it to be, but uh, we started those, those videos in about 1994, I believe. And by 1998 or 99, there were not too many Southern Gospel records you could pick up that my name was not on there for doing something. You know, no. I may not have I may not have done anything but overdub a couple of vocals, but my name on, was on on an awful lot of records well, for kinda doing like, something.
0: Yeah, kind of like Kelly Back and Gary Prim. It's like they're everywhere.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: But well, that, I, that's that's cool. I, I, for for whatever reason, I re, I thought the title was produced, but it was engineered.
1: So it was engineered. I, okay. I, I engineered. I we, we would do we would do the basic tracks. Uh, and we would do we would do you know nine or ten tracks in a day <laughs> um, and uh, you know we would we would use a lot of uh, a lot of the players that 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 uh, that we were using on, on on other projects. you know you mentioned Gary Prem on, on piano and Kelly back on guitar. Uh, he was involved in an awful lot of those both of them were involved in an awful lot of those um, uh, uh, Gaither tracking, tracking dates. A lot of times we'd have two piano players. We would have maybe Gary and Anthony Berger cause Anthony was still alive and he would come yeah. in and play on those things. Uh, or Otis Forrest might be, might be playing on them. Uh, uh, it was just, it was, it, it, it was always, it was always a good band, it was usually a pretty big band. We would usually have one. We would usually have two guitarists, two pianists, and uh, then um, bass and drums. Hmm. But, um, wow!
0: Yeah, I, I've and never then, I've never heard about having two uh, pianists in a well, in a session. But I, would one be like on organ and keys, and the other on piano? Is that what you mean?
1: Uh, yeah, it was usually, it would be Anthony, Anthony it, this, this was when Anthony was on these things. It yeah. would usually be Anthony playing piano, and whoever the other keyboard player was, and often it was Gary Prim, uh, would, be, would, would play some kind of a keyboard, uh, like an electric keyboard, sometimes play, play, play a little B3, um... But something—I mean, you, you're not—we we didn't have dueling pianos going on. It was, you know, okay. two keyboard players. Okay. One I'm playing piano. One I'm playing some kind of electric key stuff. Okay.
0: Well, I, I figure that was probably it. But also in the back of my brain, I could also picture you—you know—recording two songs at once, one in this ear and one in the other. And <laughs> 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 Mad Scientist Tommy Cooper, I've I've seen it. So, <laughs> um, and, and this is just. Curious, I know you, uh, you know, am not going to leave anybody out in the cold uh, by, you know, if there was somebody. But uh, were there any artists that you worked with that you were particularly impressed with in terms of just, you know, aptitude, uh, quickness, you know, voice, style?
1: Um, I got to tell you, um... And, 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 and I'm gonna be talking about someone that you know is a very, is a very good personal friend. Mm-hmm. Um, Lady Love Smith is, uh, she's the best female vocalist in this country. Um, she is, she, oh, she, there's something, there is something about her voice that when, it, when you hear that, it's like, oh my goodness.
0: Wow. I, I'm hoping to get her and Reggie on later. But yeah, yeah and,
1: and 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 I'm and I'm not trying to slight Reggie. Reggie's my friend too. He's a he's he's a great singer.
0: Uh, now I'll just I'll, I'll be sure he, he didn't listen to this. So go go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I probably don't have to do a thing. He probably won't listen. So actually, actually, I, I, I had I had lunch with Reggie yesterday, um, and um, but. Um, but yeah, lady, there's just there's there's something magic about her, and I remember I would hear it in the Gaither stuff. You could hear the smile in her voice, even in a section of uh, you know, of, of other girl singers. Mm-hmm. You could you could you could hear what she brought to that section. And I remember calling her one time and leaving a message and basically saying, "Oh my God!" I Because I was working on the Gaither stuff, and it almost brought me to tears when I heard. This sound, and I just called him I said, "I just got to tell you y'all you're great i just I, I love it I just love listening to this and hearing you and hung up and <laughs> uh but yeah I mean and and she's not the only but there were so many there were so many talented people uh in that whole uh, in, in, in and and i, and I and by being kind of in on the ground floor of that, I got to I got to work with Jake Hess. I got to work with Rex Nealon, mm-hmm. Brock Spear before he passed away. Yeah, you know I got a I got a chance to work with the with the, with the old timers, the 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 ones who really paved the way.
0: Oh yeah, the Goodmans and um, yeah 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 and, G- George John I, I I I grew up cut my teeth on those VHSs. Yeah. So. Yeah, and uh, anyway, I had no I no idea who the engineer was. You know, I didn't care when I was five or six. But no, um, and
1: most people don't. <laughs> I mean, which is which is fine. You know, that's I mean that's 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 you know that's not where, what we're there for. Yeah.
0: You know? yeah. Well, you you said earlier you didn't want to brag. Well, I don't want to brag, but I have had Reggie and Lady Love on a lot of my albums. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's amazing what you can get for an hourly rate. But no yeah. they they they're, they're great real real smooth and they they're great Well I hope that you enjoyed this time that we spent together I know that I have and I pray that it has made you more appreciate the forms and functions of worship and the gifted people who help facilitate it Continue the conversation by emailing any questions or suggestions you may have through my website at www.milespipemusic.com. That's M-I-L-E-S-P-I-K-E music.com. Support this endeavor by rating, reviewing, and sharing. If you want to go the extra mile, then I would greatly appreciate it if you purchase some digital downloads or hard copies of my music through the website and patronize our guest in any way that you can. Websites and details to that end will be in the show notes. This program plans to release every other week. So keep your eye out for the next edition of the Miles Pike podcast. Till next time, worship wisely.